It's July, it's summer, it's warm, and it's nice. And I also say to you, Happy Independence Freedom Day. I pray as you celebrate your freedoms with your family that this year you will continue to appreciate the gift God has given us and allowing us to be free. And we are so grateful for the ultimate freedom that comes with Him. And so as we join together for this July edition of the Home Run Club, I celebrate with you God's goodness to us all. And I thank you for continuing to support what we do for being a part of the Winning at Home family. And again this month, I'm going to continue to introduce Steve Norman to you. Last month, we shared one of his speeches. And this month, we're going to share a speech about family. Take the leap, investing in relationships at home. Huge thing for us to be doing. So we're going to join Steve now as he shares this simple message about investing in your family. Well, good morning and happy Valentine's Day. I I don't know what Valentine's Day was like for you growing up. But when I was a little kid in elementary school in suburban Chicago, the rule was is that you had to buy Valentines for everybody in your class. And the good news was they were all like kind of prepackaged and all you had to do was sign them. So you wrote their name, then you wrote your name. And the great thing about that is it's, it's very low investment and it's very low risk, right? Like if a kid doesn't like your Valentine's, they throw it out. I was always a little perplexed because I would say to my mom, I'm like, why do I have to give this person a written indication that I love them? I don't even like half the kids in my class. It just, just, just doesn't make any sense at all. This is all a big lie is what it is. But, but again, it's low investment, low risk, low return. Now you get a little, get older, and then you have to figure out like a new way to express love to somebody that you are like deeply infatuated with. So I'm a child of the 80s. If you wanted to show like your undying devotion for somebody, but you're on a shoestring budget, the best way to do it is to make them something that we called back in the day a mixtape. How many of you guys remember these days? Like you made somebody like a mixtape. There, there was so much like mental energy that went into this thing, right? Because you got to like, am I going to do a 60-minute tape or a 90-minute tape? And then you got to like time out all the songs so there's not dead air at the end of the tape. And then if you don't own the cassette or the CD, you had to record it off of the radio which is like a whole other challenge and then if you went all in you would like make like a really sweet cover jacket you'd like write like notes in it and and this this was a true labor of love a little bit more investment but a little bit but only slightly more risk like if you made somebody a mixtape and they didn't listen to it there was no way that you would know if you want to go to like to the top, top of the romance period, but again, you're still limited on a budget and you're in high school, you write somebody a song or a poem or like you make a painting of them. This is next level. And so I remember like I was always in for the big romantic gesture. There were girls that I wanted to write songs for. There was one girl that rejected me. She ended up going out with somebody else and I had to write a whole other song about that. I'm not going to sing it for you, but it was called The Storm because that's ominous, Right. And I will, I'll just recite you this one line from the bridge to sh- show you like how deep into this thing I went. Uh, when I found out she was dating this other guy, the bridge of the song went like this. Jesus, my sweet Jesus, I know that you know what this is like. Jesus, my sweet Jesus, you were also betrayed by a kiss one night. You've seen the storm strike in your life. So theologically, it was completely and totally unsound. But it like captured the angst that I was living in at that moment, right? 
So we're all trying to answer the question, how do we show the people that we care about that we love them? And we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture today that tells us what love can look like at home and steps that we can take. There, there's this guy who's an early follower of Jesus. He's called the, the Apostle Paul. He gives us five verbs and five accompanying questions that we can ask when we're trying to determine how do we love the people that we live with well. And these verses are Ephesians 5 and 6, and the verbs are revere, submit, sacrifice, honor, and serve. Revere, submit, sacrifice, honor, and serve. Now, the kind of the verse that we kick this whole conversation off with is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Some of you may have heard this one before. It, we're going to get into it a little bit. It talks about wives. Submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And let's just, like, we're going to pull the band-aid off early. We're going to talk about this whole dreaded submit word, okay? First of all, let's tell the truth. This verse has been used to abuse women for generations. Evil people have twisted biblical words with ill intent with horrific results. Nothing in the words or way of Jesus tells us that we get to use our positions to power up on the people around us. And if anyone has misused this verse on you, let me the, be the first to say, I'm sorry that that happened. And if you have ever used this verse to power up on somebody else in your home, it's time for you to confess and repent. Also, if you are in a situation in your home life, where your physical safety is at risk, please get out. And if you need resources about next steps you can take in order to make that happen to protect your and your children's well-being, please let us know. And we'll point you in the right direction. But it's only because self-centered people have warped this concept that we choke on the word submit. When I meet with young couples to plan a wedding, I'll usually ask them, do you want to do traditional vows or do you want to do original vows? And they're like, well, we're, we want to do traditional vows because like, we don't want to write something from scratch and memorize it. That's weird. They go, we want to use the traditional vows, but if you could leave out that whole part that says that we have to obey each other, that would be great. Why? Because modern couples chafe at the idea of having to be controlled by one another. But in order for us to really understand the essence of this passage, we need to get to the why behind the what. We need to get to the motivation behind the command. Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in order, before we talk about submit, we have to talk about revere. And the scripture calls us to revere the person of Jesus. To revere means that we show deep respect or admiration for something or someone. A little over 10 years ago, I was a part of a group that was trying to say, hey, if we could get Muslims and Christians to have better conversations with one another, could we decrease the amount of animosity and tension or even violence that there is between people groups, not in the United States, but around the world? And so a group was having a conference about this in Washington, D.C., and a couple, couple weeks before the conference happened, they said, hey, guess what? Um, our group is going to be able to have a conversation with personnel from the White House about this issue. They go, it's not a guarantee, but there's a very slim chance that the president of the United States might join us for this conversation. And my first thought was, I think I need to buy a new tie. Like, I'm not going all in for a new suit, but if I'm going to be in the same room with the leader of the free world in order to respect and show deference to that office and that person, I want to be my best and look my best. 
Now, person didn't end up showing up, but if they had, I would have been ready. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, how are we doing when it comes to cultivating a sense of reverence, awe, or honor for the person of Jesus Christ? Do we recalibrate our wonder and appreciation for him through the study of scripture, through prayer, time in silence, time in worship, or the appreciation of creation? Ethan Cross, a psychologist and professor at the University of Michigan, says that a sense of wonder is really important for our mental health. He said people who have wonder understand that there is something bigger in their lives and in the world than themselves and their problems. And it's only when we view Jesus Christ as creator, king, sustainer, savior, provider, and redeemer that we start to make sense out of all of the different competing values in our lives. Mutual submission only works when both parties in a relationship yield to the authority of somebody beyond themselves. And in this case, that authority is Jesus. Let me ask you this very pointed question. Who is the authority in your home these days? Proverbs 13.10 says this. It says, where there is strife, where there's conflict, where there's perpetual tension, there is pride. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when there's tension in our house, I want to say like, oh, well, I had a bad day, or so-and-so and I have different personalities, or I'll explain it away with a thousand different things, but the Bible's really clear. It says that if, there is, if tension is a regularity in your home, it's because humility is not a value there. And the reason that I get into unnecessary, wife, uh, uh, unnecessary conflicts with my wife of almost 20 years or unnecessary, nonsensical fights with any of my four children, it's because pride has eclipsed love in my heart that day. If our view of Jesus is clear, our perspective of our relationships becomes clear too. But if our view of Jesus is blurry or out of focus, our understanding of our relationships becomes blurry too. So if we're going to try to wrestle down what it means to revere Christ so we can love one another, we must start with this question. Who is the authority in our home? So if the first word is revere, the second word is submit. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In kindergarten, we learn how to take turns. It is a basic rule for politeness. When we get older, we realize that taking turns is critical for safety and the well-being of a society. Like when you come to a four-way stop and four cars get there at the same time, there's a rule that says the person on your right goes first. So you go, and then you go, and then I go, and then you get to go. There's, there's a system for it. We, my wife Kelly and I, we grew up in Chicago. We lived in Detroit. So big city driving requires like you cannot, if you flinch, you are dead. So you just, you just got to go. And Kelly's like got Sicilian blood in her. Her dad grew up in New York. So she is not a wallflower when it comes to driving. So it is kill or be killed, eat or be eaten. When we moved to West Michigan, everybody's like super nice. And you get to four-way stops. It doesn't matter what order they got there. They're like, you go. No, 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 you go. No, you go. I'm like, somebody go already. I'll go. Because this, that's not how it works. There's a system. And I think that sometimes in our relationships, we're like, oh, there are rules. You go and then I, then I go. But that's not how mutual submission works. Taking turns is a four-way stop. Mutual submission is a two-way yield. At every intersection that I come into my relationship, there's a yield sign. Say, are you prepared, ready, willing, and able to submit to your wife? See, oftentimes we settle for a love that is transactional. We say, I'll do X and you do Y. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. 
But a marriage isn't, isn't a business. A marriage is a living, breathing dynamic where when things are going well, we are being changed and we're changing the other person. Martin Luther, the father of the Lutheran movement, said that marriage is a school of character. Marriage is the relationship where I'm being refined. It's the crucible where God is melting off the parts of me that don't belong. When I was 26 and single, I had no idea how selfish I was. When I was 26 and married, it started to become clear. <laughs> See, the world settles for a love that is transactional, but Christ invites us to a love that is transformational. Whereas we are being loved by him, in spite of all of our flaws and foibles, we are able to show love to others in spite of all of theirs. Some people say the goal of a great marriage is compromise. The problem with that is that sometimes you start keeping score over who's doing the most compromising. But Romans 12 says we are to be devoted to one another in love and to honor one another above yourself. When our mutual respect for each other is anchored in our appreciation for Jesus, love wins the day. So when we talk about revere, the question is, who's the authority in your home? When we talk about submission, the question is, where is God inviting me to yield? Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, the body, of which he is the Savior. No, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, for those of us who still feel a little bit weird about this passage, wait until you hear the bar for the husband. Like, wives get three verses, husbands get nine, because husbands need all sorts of work. If the word for wives is submit, the words for husbands is sacrifice yourself for your wife. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but to be holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Jesus is saying, all I'm asking is that you show the same consideration for your wife as you do for yourself. And most of us don't have any trouble appreciating ourselves. Love her. How? As Christ loved the church. How did Christ show his love for the church? By giving himself up for her. So that she could be presented as holy and blameless. Jesus calls us to take up our cross daily and follow him. And he calls husbands to lay down their lives for their wives daily. Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. And in a marriage, we don't, we don't just have a roommate. We don't just have a lover. We have a lifelong friend. 
And a friend of mine, Lieutenant Colonel Latchaw, reminded me of a story of what sacrificial love and action looks like. He reminded me that on February 3rd, 1943, at 12.55 a.m., a German submarine torpedoed the USS Dorchester, a transport ship carrying 900 American servicemen to Europe. The torpedo knocked out the ship's electrical system, leaving everyone in the dark. Panic set in among the men on board. Many of them were trapped below decks. And it was at this point that four U.S. Army chaplains, the Reverend George Fox, the Reverend Clark Poling, Rabbi Alexander Good, and Father John Washington sought to calm the men and evacuate them safely. When they realized there weren't enough life jackets for all on board, the chaplains removed their own life vests and gave them away. They helped as many men as they could into the lifeboats. Then they locked arms, praying and singing hymns as the ship went down. One survivor says, as I swam away from the ship, I looked back. The bow came up high and slid under. And the last thing I saw, four chaplains praying for the safety of the men. They had done everything they could. See, in a marriage, when push comes to shove, when they feel like it are an impact, God is calling husbands to take off life jackets and say, you go first. If the question when it comes to revering Christ is who's the authority in your home, and the question about submission is where is God calling me to yield, then the question when it comes to sacrifice for us husbands is how is God leading me to lay down my life, my will, my rights, my agenda, my preferences? How is God calling me to sacrifice myself for my wife this week? If sacrifice is a third word, the fourth word is honor. This one's for the children, both minors and adults. Honor your parents. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. For the first commandment with a promise is, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. Again, we need to acknowledge that some parents have yielded this verse as a weapon. That's not right. The word honor means to bend the knee, to kneel before somebody, to say, this person is valuable and important in my life. As parents, it's our job to see our kids the way that God sees them. And when we're children, it's our job to see our parents as God sees them. Not perfect, but placed over us to provide for us, nurture us, care for us, lead for us in this season of our lives. See, over time, our relationship with our parents will evolve, but they never stop being your parents. And you never stop being a son or daughter. Back when this command was first issued, there was no such thing as law enforcement. Family and honor and respect for parents is what held a culture together. Now, even though God calls you to honor your parents, doesn't mean that you will agree with them at every turn, but it does mean that you can disagree with them in a manner that is respectful rather than demeaning. You will have conflict, but you get to choose how you will enter into that conflict, what words and tone and posture you will use in that discussion. He says, it's out of all the commandments, there's only one commandment that comes with a promise. It's this one. It says, obey your parents, honor your father and mother, because when you do, things will go well with you. People with healthy relationships have less stress. 
People who have less stress live longer and have a higher quality of life. So when you obey your parents, you do it because it's right. It's good for them. It shows trust in God, but it's also good for you, spiritually, mentally, psychologically. So if your child, whether you're 6, 16, or 60, the question for you today when it comes to loving your parents is, what does it look like for me to honor them today? What does honor look like today? Revere, submit, sacrifice, honor, and then finally serve. Ephesians 6, 4. Parents, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. I was talking to my mom yesterday, and she says that my sister will quote this verse to her often. Do not exasperate. My, uh, my sister will ex- write, quote this verse to my mom. <laughs> Don't exasperate your children. Another translation is, do not provoke your children to wrath. That's not a term that we use a lot these days. A term that you do hear a lot these days is my, my, if my daughter were to translate this verse, it would be like, dad, don't trigger me. Like, don't, don't poke me. Don't aggravate me. Don't just, don't, don't antagonize me for no good reason. Uh, sometimes she'll say if we're having a, a heated exchange, just why you got to be coming at me? And uh, I'm realizing that what she's saying in the biblical sense is, father, why are you provoking me to wrath in this instance? She's like, don't come at me, come to me. Come gently, you can come firmly, you can come wisely, but don't, don't, be, don't be doing this. Come, don't come with a closed fist, come with open hands. Say, hey, there's something of, of great importance that we need to figure out. Let's talk. On school days, either my wife Kelly or I will drive our four kids to school. We have one child who is not particularly a morning person and needs some space to warm into their day. On one particular morning, we were driving to school in the minivan, and this child got into a verbal altercation with one or more of their siblings. And I go, this is absolutely absurd. If you could hear the words that you were saying, you would be embarrassed. And then I thought, oh, they can hear the words that they're saying. Technology allows me to do this. So I took out my phone when I was driving, not recommended, and I opened up the voice memo app, and I literally started to record this individual screaming at the other people in the car. How exactly do you think that went over? In hindsight, I realized that my motive wasn't to train them in the Lord. I wasn't trying to teach them skills that help them manage anger. I was trying to shame them into changing their behavior. And this is always wrong. And I had to admit I was wrong. And I've been wrong since then, more times than I want to admit. Many of us have learned over time, if you had a very temperamental parent, boss, coach, or teacher, most of us who are adults have learned that fear can be a powerful short-term motivator. But the long-term result in leading by fear is always resentment. When you stop fearing somebody, they can't control you anymore. And if you resent them, you don't respect them. And as soon as respect is gone, the relationship is fundamentally broken. As parents, we get to choose how we will engage our children. Will we trigger them or will we train them? Will we lead them or will we lay into them? Will we encourage them or antagonize them? We, we get to make those choices. 
But here's the catch. Spiritually, I cannot give my children what I don't have. If I'm not being responsible, I can't teach responsibility. If I'm not managing my anger, I can't teach them self-control. If I'm not being kind, I cannot model kindness. So when it comes to serving our children, I've got a very bold question that I want you to consider asking your children. Don't ask them as a group. If you can, take them out for coffee. Have like a 30-minute date. Ask them this very short, direct question, which is this. In what area of your life am I triggering you? Where in our relationship do you feel like you're being unnecessarily aggravated? And maybe your son or daughter will need some time to think about that. One of the lessons I've learned the hard way is if children are struggling with grades, the worst time to talk about that is as soon as we get report cards. Because at that point, it's too late to do anything about it. And all we're doing is beating people up. We addressed that earlier in the term. How many of you as kids who are athletes know that the absolute worst time for your parent to talk to you about a game is when you're walking off the field, the ice, or the court? Like, just give me a minute to decompress. We can talk about it later. But I don't need you to give me feedback right away. In fact, some research says that parent, the, only parent, the only parent feedback that we should give our student athletes is this. I love to watch you play. End of sentence, full stop. As our kids get older, we're, we're paying coaches to give them coaching. Our only job is to love, encourage, and support. So ask your children, where, where is it in our relationship that I'm triggering you? And what do you need from me to become the kind of person that you want to be? Not only did the Apostle Paul write these words to the people in this ancient Greek city of Ephesus, but he wrote another letter to people in another Greek town called Corinth. And he wrote some words about love that we hear a lot in weddings these days. The problem is Paul didn't write these words for weddings at all. He never, he never had romantic love in mind when he wrote these. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13, he was talking about family relationships. He was talking about church relationships. And what did he say? Some of you could probably rattle this off from memory. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It doesn't keep track of who was wrong and when. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And I once read that somebody said, if you want to figure out how to internalize this kind of love, Here's an exercise that you can try or a prayer that you can pray. Read this passage again and switch out the word love and put your name there. To be able to say, by the grace of God, Steve is patient. Steve is kind. Steve does not envy. Steve does not boast. Michaela is not proud. Timothy does not dishonor others. Jeff is not self-seeking. Bailey is not easily angered. Jen keeps no record of wrongs. Eric does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. 
The people of Red Cedar always protect, always trust, always hope, always persevere. Red Cedar never fails when it comes to love. And if you're stuck in any relationship, just consider taking these four verses, 1 Corinthians 3, 4 through 8, and pray them that way every day. And ask God to start doing something in you. The people of Israel wandered through the desert for 40 years, and when they finally got to the edge of the promised land, they had to make a decision whether or not they were going to go into the future in their own strength or whether they were going to trust God in in this major endeavor in their life. And their leader, Joshua, says this. He goes, today you have to make a choice. You can fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness, but if you do, it means that you have to throw away all the gods that your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Like Joshua put a line in the sand. He put a stake in the ground. He put a cornerstone as the foundation. He says, everybody else can do what they want. We choose to live this way as a family. And I don't know if anybody's told you this, but life is hard. And sometimes when it comes to family, the only priority that we have in any given week, and I'll speak for my family as before I'll speak for anybody else's, the only goal that we have at the beginning of any given week is just to survive. Like just to get kids to school, make sure that everybody's fed and alive and safe. And if we can get to Friday night and that has happened, that was a win. And I'm not saying that there aren't seasons in life where that's, that's just all we can manage. But my fear for my own family is that if survival is all I settle for, survival is all I'll get. And sometimes I'm just like, well, you know, life is just happening and we'll just do our best to tread water and keep our nose above it. And that's it. But the scriptures are saying, but what kind of choices are we making along the way? Not just did we, did we get through it, but what kind of people were we when we got to that Friday? And, and I believe that God is inviting us as Red Cedar to be able to say, we want to be the kind of people who lead families who practice reverence for Jesus. Who pursue mutual submission in our marriages. Who choose to be husbands who model sacrifice for their wives every single day. We choose to be children who are honor our parents, even when it is not fun or easy or exciting. And we will be parents who honor our children by refusing to exasperate them. That rather than, rather than manipulating them, rather than pushing them down under our thumbs, elevate them and say, the reason that I'm leaning into this issue is because God sees something more in you than you see in yourself. And it's my obligation as a parent to help you have the vision for what your life can be as you trust Jesus. The only reason I'm pressing you isn't because I'm trying to make you into some extension of me. It's because I want you to be the person that Jesus called you to become. One of my dad's favorite verses, verse that we read at his memorial service, comes from the book of Ezekiel, where God says, when you have a heart of stone, I want to turn it into a heart of flesh. It's really cold outside. 
Like you, you don't have to wait very long for anything to freeze. And the natural tendency of our hearts outside of God is for them to get protected and for them to get hardened. And some of us are, are stuck in our marriages, we're stuck in our relationships with our parents, we're stuck in our relationships with our children because we have allowed hurt and resentment to put our heart in a block of ice. And maybe our first prayer before we can do any of this other stuff is, God, will you take my hard heart and soften it? The book of Malachi says that when, when, the, when the Messiah comes, he will turn the hearts of fathers to children and the hearts of children to fathers. Some of us, like we might be in the same room physically, but our hearts are pointing away from each other. And God wants to put those hearts on a swivel and turn them back. And it's my prayer that we could be the kind of people in our families that say, God, if my heart is heart, change mine first. Or if my heart is turned away from somebody, turn mine back first. When Kelly and I were going to premarital counseling, our, our, our counselor's name was Jack. And, and he said, hey, when there's a conflict, it's really important for you to apologize. And we said, well, what happens if we're both wrong? Who apologizes first? <laughs> and like, he was the ultimate Jedi master because he said, oh, that's easy. Whoever's the most mature. <laughs> like, I, I don't like this guy at all, right? <laughs> so the prayer that we're praying is what? God, let me, make me the person who's willing to go first. Will you, will you humble me so that if there's, if there's any step that needs to get taken, I'll go first. Because, because, I, because I, I, I honor you out of reverence for you, out of belief and faith and confidence in Jesus Christ. I am going to humble myself to be an agent of healing and growth and breakthrough and restoration in my family. Will you show me one step I can take today to move in that direction? Let's pray together and ask God to lead us the way we love at home. Father God, you care about us more than we are able to humanly understand. And God, you loved us not because we were perfect or lovely or lovable. You loved us because we were yours. And God, there have been moments in this last week where we haven't loved people in our homes, people who live under our roofs or people who are blood relatives or people that we're connected to by blended family dynamics. We haven't loved them because they didn't perform the way that we wanted to. And God, I just pray that you would remind us that you loved us before we performed the way that you wanted us to. And your grace and your kindness drew us into right relationship with you. And God, I pray that the very same kindness that you showed to us, we would show to other people, e even if we feel like they are, have barred the gates of their heart against us. Lord, I pray that when we see you as the authority in our home, we would be able to submit to your leadership. We would acknowledge the needs of others, that we would sacrifice on their behalf. We would honor them and we would serve them in the very same ways that you honor and serve us. So God, where there are family dynamics, where hearts are breaking, I pray that you would lift our eyes and our hopes towards you. And you would remind us that we're not called to fix other people. We're called to trust you with our words, our choices, and our thoughts. I pray that you would give us grace to do that today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Again, as you listen to Steve now for the second time on this Home Run Club series, we hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. And you see Steve's practical teaching style 
that gives us simple guidance on how to grow in our family life. That's what we're all about. Thank you for partnering with us, helping us do this. I pray as God continues to be with you as you go through these summer months that his spirit would reign in your heart and you would know we're here for you. If there's anything we can do for you or your family, make sure you let us know. Blessings to you and may you continue to celebrate freedom as you enjoy this month that we celebrate freedom in our nation and also as you enjoy your family. God bless you as you continue to win at home.